copy of the scriptures to Mark chapter 4. We're going through Mark chapter 4 now. Uh, we've been in Mark chapter 4 actually for a few weeks. And we're now looking at these parables. We've been at, looking at the parables. I'm going to start by simply reading the two parables we're going to be focusing on. And you'll find them in Mark chapter 4 verses 26 to 34. The parable of the seed growing and the parable of the mustard seed. Starting in verse 26. And Jesus said, The kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. He sleeps and rises. Night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows, he knows not how. The earth produces by itself, first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. And he said, with what can we compare the kingdom of God, or what parable shall we use for it? It is like a grain of mustard seed, when sown on the ground, is the smallest of all the seeds on earth, yet when it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. With many such parables, he spoke the word to them as they were able to hear it. He did not speak to them without a parable, but privately to his own disciples, he explained everything. Let's get some context here. We'll begin to unpack it. Jesus comes in Mark chapter 1 preaching that there's a coming kingdom. You remember this? He says the time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. And those who were listening, his disciples, surely would have thought Jesus is the Messiah and we are about to be invited to be participants in ushering in this kingdom. And what were they expecting when they're thinking about a kingdom? They're thinking that the kingdom is going to perhaps advance by power and by might. It's going to be advanced by uh, maybe military force. The Messiah they had heard about and thought about and believed in was one who would rule and one who would reign and one who would have an authority. And so they expected that Jesus would use his power to come in and overthrow Rome and establish right there in Jerusalem a kingdom right there on earth. And suddenly, things began to go wrong. The Pharisees and the scribes really don't like Jesus, and they oppose him at every turn. They're accusing him of being unlawful. They're accusing him of being uh, something other than what he truly is. His own family in chapter 3 thinks he's out of his mind. Chapter 3, verses 20 to 21. It culminates with the scribes coming down from Jerusalem in chapter 3, verse 22 to 20 or to 30, where these leaders from Jerusalem come and they actually accuse Jesus of being possessed by Beelzebul, the prince of demons. The outright rejection of the leadership of Israel is complete at that point. The religious elite have rejected their Messiah, Jesus has chosen an alternative leadership, the 12 apostles, 
And yet at this point, there's still probably a lot of confusion about what this really means. What does it mean to have a kingdom? What does it mean to set up the kingdom? Jesus has been talking about a kingdom, and none of it seems to be working the way you would expect. Everyone's rejecting him, and so his apostles are probably quite confused. And so he sits down in chapter 4, and he's teaching. He teaches now in parables. And the parables are meant to conceal and reveal both at the same time. The leadership is being concealed, certain truths about the kingdom, the secrets are being concealed, but the secrets of the kingdom are being revealed to the disciples. He has them, and in verses 10 to 20, he kind of unpacks the nature of this kingdom and continues doing it in the parables that we'll be looking at this morning. Turns out that the parable's not going to be advancing by military power. It's not going to be something flashy, an explosion of power, and then all of a sudden the Israel... Uh, the Israel kingdom that they had long anticipated is established. It's not going to be anything like that. Jesus begins talking about seeds. He begins talking about sowing seeds. And there's this new idea that's introduced that perhaps the kingdom's not going to come in the way that they all had expected or in the timing that they all had expected. Maybe it's going to be a bit different. The kingdom is like a man scattering seed, the Bible says, Jesus says. The kingdom is like a mustard seed. There's going to be things that happen that seem quite insignificant. There's going to be things that seem to be very small. And yet the final result will still be this great and glorious kingdom. Maybe things won't happen quite like the disciples thought. And there's going to be an intermediate age between Jesus' coming and between the establishing of the kingdom, that's kind of what these parables are showing. And they begin to show that the nature of this kingdom, <clears throat> or at least the nature of the citizens of the kingdom, is that they are people who hear the word of God. Isn't that the parable of the sower? These, the seeds go out and there's different kinds of soil. Remember this, right? The first soil just gets so distracted they don't hear it. And the second, they don't hear the word, the second soil takes it for a little while. They're all excited about it, and then they eventually leave it when it gets hard. And the third soil receives the seed of the word about the kingdom, the word of this gospel, and they receive it, and they like it, and they approve it, but then it eventually gets choked out by the cares of the world. The nature of the citizens of the kingdom Jesus is teaching is that these are people who are hearers of the word. These are people who listen. And so in chapter 4, verse 3, he says an imperative, listen. And then in chapter 4, verse 24, he says, pay attention to what you hear. Two imperatives kind of bookending that section. Who here listens, Jesus might be saying. Who among you actually hears the message? The message is going to be thrown out and there's an evidence. The evidence that you are a citizen of the kingdom is that you hear the word, you accept it, verse 20, you bear fruit 30-fold and 60-fold and 100-fold. And so the parables are introducing this different idea that the kingdom is not going to grow by might, by military power, but the kingdom work is going to be accomplished by the sowing of seed. Or 
the spreading of the word. So let's recap a little bit what we've been saying. We called it last week incremental revival, this idea that kingdom work, it works toward revival, but it works toward it in small ways. Let's kind of backtrack. I want to go over the three points of last week. And this week is kind of an addition to last week's. This week we're going to add two more points to the three we already gave. And we're going to expand a little bit on the last week's three points. Let's look at the first point that we looked at last week, that kingdom work starts when we hear the word. This seems basic stuff, but this is stuff that we cannot ever forget. That the work of revival, the work that God has for us to do, the kingdom advance, the gospel growth always begins with the word of God being heard by God's people. That's what's happening in chapter 4, verses 21 to 25. You could just summarize, we summarize in verse 25. He says, to the one who has, that is, the one who has ears to hear, that is, the one who is listening, receiving, and, and, and bearing fruit because they're hearing the word of God, the one who has, more will be given. There's going to be this abundance of fruit in the life of the person who is hearing, hearing the word of God. More will be given. And from the one who has not, that is, the person who doesn't really have ears to hear, the person who doesn't really uh, sit under the word of God and submit themselves to it, they might hear a lot of sermons, but they're not listening, they're not accepting it, they're not applying it. Even what he thinks he has is going to be taken away, the text says. And so we've got to be people who hear the word. I want to remind you, church, that we are people of the word. Amen? We are people who sit under, submit ourselves under the word of God. And we are not unique in this. Let me tell you that all God's people from all ages have been people of a book, the book. And I want to go back and just show you this. Some of the men in men's equipping group have been, uh, or not some, all of us have been given these assignments to read through a big portions of the scripture. And as I was reading through Deuteronomy, and I'm thinking about what we're preaching on, I just kept coming across some of these texts. Go to Deuteronomy 17. I'm going to give you a little bit of time to get there. At this portion of Deuteronomy uh, Moses is speaking about this coming time where they're going to appoint a king, okay? That Israel will have this opportunity to appoint a king. And there's some directions for how they are to do that, some qualifications for what the king must and must not be like. And then in chapter 17, verse 18, he says this, and when he, that's the king, this new king that you pick, chapter 17, verse 18, when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And what shall he do with it? Watch this, guys. It shall be with him. And he shall read it all the days of his life that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of his law and his statutes. How does a king rule rightly over a kingdom? He reads the book. All the days of his life. Why? Because he fears the Lord is God when he reads the book. And he's able to keep the words of the law when he reads the book and doing them. Verse 20, that his heart may not be lifted up above his brothers. What does the word do in the heart of a man who reads it again and again and again? It humbles him. It makes him not put his heart higher than the others around him. That he may not turn aside from the commandment either to the right hand or to the left so that he may continue long in his kingdom, he and his children in Israel. Uh, they, have, they say, so goes the leadership. Uh, wherever the leadership goes, there go the followers. 
It's true that if the king is going to be a good king, he's got to be a king who reads and studies and lives by the book. If he wants his kingdom to follow God, he's got to give himself to the word of God. And so, hey, if you get a king, you better read. And I think this should be a lesson or a warning or an exhortation to anyone who wants to be a leader in any situation. Fathers, take this to heart. Heads of household, take this to heart. Anyone who aspires to leadership in a godly way, take this to heart. That the way God designed leaders to lead is by leading from the Scriptures. Turn over now a few pages to Deuteronomy 30. Deuteronomy chapter 30, it comes up again as Moses is exhorting the nation of Israel to remain faithful. In chapter 30, Sorry, I read that wrong. Chapter 31. Chapter 31, verse 9. Chapter 31, verse 9, Moses wrote the law and gave it to the priests, the sons of Levi, who carried the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, and all the elders of Israel. And Moses commanded them, at the end of every seven years, at the set time in the year of release, at the Feast of Booths, when all Israel comes to appear before the Lord your God, the place that he will choose, you shall read this law before all Israel in their hearing. So once a year, everyone, or once every seven years, all are gathering, all are assembling. And what do you do with them? You shall read it. Just read straight through it. All the book of the law you read before everyone in their hearing. Who's going to be there? Who needs this? Who, which kind of people? Verse 12, assemble the people, men, women, and little ones, and the sojourner within your town, towns, that they may hear. Why? And learn to fear the Lord your God and be careful to do all the words of this law that their children who have not known it may hear and learn to fear the Lord your God as long as you live in the land that you're going to possess. What's going to be critical for their success in the mission that God has given them going into the promised land? You must be a people who live by the book. And so make sure you carve out some time in your life to sit down every single person men, women, and children, and sit and listen to it being read because it's the Word of God, and we must hear the Word of God. We are people of the book. Deuteronomy 32, 44 to 47, Moses came and recited all the words of this song in the hearing of the people, he and Joshua the son of Nun. And when Moses had finished speaking all these words to all Israel, he said to them, take to heart all the words by which I'm warning you today that you may command them to your children that they may be careful to do all the words of this law for it is no empty word for you. Listen to this, church. But your very life. And by this word you shall live long in the land that you are going over the Jordan to possess. Friends, this word is your life. This is what Moses said to Israel. This is what we must believe today that this word that God has spoken is our very life. And so kings ought to rule by it. Families ought to hear it. We ought to read it, meditate on it, feast on it, ponder it, memorize it. We are feeding on this. We cannot live the life that God has called us to live except that we fill ourselves with the word of God. Any kind of incremental revival we long for or pray for must always begin with us being hearers of the word. It always starts as we hear the word. This is the ocean that we dive into. 
This is where we swim. This is the field that we're going to be plowing all the days of our lives. We are people of the book. This is where it begins, but it's not where it ends. Kingdom work, secondly, we talked about last week, continues as we spread the word. And so we are not sitting here to just read and to listen and to learn because it feels good to read and to listen and to learn. The Lord has given us something to do with that which we know, and that which we know from Scripture is to be spread. That's the point of the parable where he says, if you are a light, are you supposed to just go under the bed? If you are good soil, you grow and you bear fruit, right? And so there's this call to now be spreaders of the word of God. If you're still in Deuteronomy, go back to chapter 6. Just been reflecting on all these things. It's, this is a passage that's normally um, used to talk about parenting, and rightly so. Chapter 6, verse 4, parents perk up. This is God's parenting plan for you and for me. But I want to draw the further application from it. Verse 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might. And these words, we are words people. All of God's people in all ages are word people because we live by the word of God. These words that I command you today shall be on your heart. And what do you do with them? You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise and you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. That's a commitment to the word of God, isn't it? A constant in every place you are. You are hearing it, treasuring it, and talking about it with the people around you, parents with their children. I think this gives us a paradigm for how ministry ought to work. And the most important ministry is that ministry that parents have with their children in the household, and they ought to be doing this. But I think the implication is that if we want to be people who are seed sowers, word spreaders, you know what we are? We're people who are first filled with it. We love the Lord with all our heart, and we fill our hearts with his words, and then out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. Colossians 3.16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom. We are people who read and study and feast on the Bible, but not just so we can grow in theological knowledge, but that we would be able to then talk to other people, to speak the truth in love, to sow the seed. So the kingdom work begins with a word from God, his word speaking to us. It fills us and then it overflows from us. This is the paradigm, word-filled people living word-filled lives, having word-filled conversations with friends, with family, with church members, with neighbors. This is how the kingdom work. This is how the incremental revival happens as we spread the word of God. Here's the third point we looked at last week, that it seems insignificant, doesn't it? I think there are certain acts of seed sowing that seem so insignificant we don't do them. Oh, what does it matter if I say that encouraging word? They'll forget it anyway. What does it matter if I miss this opportunity with this individual to speak the truth to their life? What does it matter if I don't 
teach my children. They'll figure it out. (laughs) Good luck. What does it matter? And so we have these little moments where we don't take the opportunity God has given us. We don't speak the truth because we don't think it's very significant. But I think that the parable of the guy scattering seed ought to remind us that the way God does his great and glorious things is often through the mundane, obscure, ordinary works of seed sowing. That conversation that you thought was insignificant matters. That time that you prayed with that brother or sister after the service really matters. Sitting around the table and opening up the Bible to read with your kids really matters, even if it looks like no one's paying attention. God's Word spreads and often spreads in obscure, unnoticed ways, just like a man sowing seed. Now let's go back to Mark chapter 4. That was all review. (laughs) We're just getting started, church. We got two more points. Two more points. We've been calling this the incremental revival. The kind of life-giving work that God wants to do is rarely in the big extravagant situations, more often in the obscure ones that have no fanfare. One drop in the rainstorm. You say, what does it matter if one drop doesn't fall? Well, you don't get a raindrops until, unless you have raindrops falling. Every little drop is participating in this greater work that God is doing. Let's look back at verse 26. Because I want to draw your attention to this parable of the seed growing. He says, the kingdom of God is like a man scattering seed on the ground. He, the farmer, sleeps and rises night and day. And the seed sprouts and grows. He knows not how. Let me ask you, looking at that verse, which is the thing doing the action? The the farmer, yes, he does sow the seed, but after that he goes to bed. It doesn't say much of what a farmer does. Now, that's interesting. If you're going to be talking about a farmer, uh, you're usually going to talk about the way of worker is, or way the farmer is a hard worker. In fact, in other places in the scripture, a farmer is held up as a picture of the kind of hardworking ethic that we all ought to have, be like a hardworking farmer, Second uh, Timothy 2 mentions. But there's nothing really about the farmer here. All he does is scatter the seed, and then it says he goes to sleep, he rises again night and day, and he doesn't really quite know how it's working. I think Jesus is intentionally moving your attention away from the farmer because, guess what? The farmer's not the point. The farmer's not the point. The farmer doesn't water, the farmer doesn't cultivate, the farmer doesn't irrigate, he sows the seed, And then he goes on with his life. Look, he doesn't even know how the crop grows. You know why that Jesus is drawing our attention away from the farmer? It's because he's drawing our attention to something else. He's drawing our attention to the seed. And what the seed does. You see that? What does the seed do? He's sleeping, and the seed there 
is, is now growing. It's sprouting. You got some action verbs here. It's sprouting. It's growing. He doesn't know how. The earth produces by itself. First the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. So slowly over time, even as the farmer does nothing, the seed grows into a harvest. Here's our fourth point. Kingdom work relies upon God's sufficient work. Sorry, word. Because it is the word that does the work. Kingdom work it relies upon this. It banks its success on the power of the word of God. The word does the work. Think about this, church. How did God create the universe? It was his word. He spoke it into existence. How did God call Abraham to himself? He spoke to him. How did God reveal himself at Sinai? He spoke and inscripturated his law on tablets of stone and in, in, in the book of the law. When Israel fell into depravity, how was it that they came to reform themselves? It was in King Josiah had discovered the book of the law and it brought revival and reform to Israel. You remember in Ezekiel, that vision that the prophet was given, he was standing before a big valley, the valley of dry bones. And here is this big valley of no life, but dry bones. And Ezekiel's going, what's going on here? And God says, I want this, this valley of dry bones to be a valley filled with a great army. And God says, well, how are we going to do this? And God says, speak to the bones. Speak. Prophesy to them. And what happens? As he begins to speak the word of God in the vision, this great army is brought to life. The bones become enfleshed, regenerated into a fully formed army. Get this down, mark this reality, that God always does his work through his word. The work that God does in creation, in salvation, in sanctification is through his word. Isaiah 55, verses 10 and 11. For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says. God's word is described there like rain falling. And it comes and it waters the earth and it causes life to appear. So shall my word be that goes out from my mouth, God says. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose and shall succeed in the thing for which I sent it. God will never allow his word to return to him void. Listen, the word always is active. It is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And as the word comes forth, it accomplishes God's work. And the New Testament goes on to highlight all these realities, the primacy and the power of the word of God. John the Baptist appears in the beginning of Mark. What's he doing? He's preaching. Jesus appears through Mark. What is he doing? He's preaching and teaching in every opportunity he gets. What does Paul say? Timothy, preach the word. I mean, there's no weightier charge than what he gives them right there in 2 Timothy 4. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, 
who is to judge the living and the dead and by his kingdom, preach the word. Why? Because that's how God works in the world. Let me mark three works that God's word does real briefly. What what does the word do? Here's one. The word causes the new birth. 1 Peter 1.23, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. People are born again by the word of God. Uh, The word of God is like a seed itself. Even Peter is saying this. And you're born again, not from a seed that grows up into a tree, but God's word is like a seed. And when it goes into the heart, it causes the new birth. You are born again, Peter says, through the living and abiding word of God. Born again, what does that mean? Born again is a phrase used to describe the inward transformation God brings about when he saves someone. Think about your first birth. You remember it? No. Why? Because it's not something you did, it's something that happened to you. Forces outside of yourself brought you kicking and screaming into this world. The Word of God does this spiritually to people. The Word of God is the force that comes from without. It is a force outside of ourselves. It is the living and abiding Word of God. And when it comes, it affects the new birth in the lives of once dead people. James chapter 1, verse 18 makes the same point. Of His own will, God brought us forth. He brought us to life. How? By the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. Listen, church, God uses means to accomplish ends. He uses, you could say, tools to accomplish purposes. You use a hammer to strike a nail. You use an axe to chop down a tree. God uses his word to bring spiritually dead people to life. It is done through his word. You want a visual of this? Remember Jesus standing outside the tomb of Lazarus. Lazarus has been dead. His body is a corpse decaying. And Jesus speaks to that corpse. And he says, Lazarus, come forth. And the brain waves start going again, and the blood starts flowing again. Heart begins to beat. The skin begins to heal, uh, coming back from its decay, and up sits this man who had been dead. That's a picture of spiritually what the Word does. Christ's Word brings life. It brings healing. It brings the new birth. Secondly, what else does God's Word do? God's Word gathers His people. Turn to John chapter 10. John chapter 10. This is uh, the famous portion of Scripture where Jesus is saying that he's the good shepherd. And he's speaking of his sheep. And if you go down to verse 16 of chapter 10, Jesus says, I have other sheep that are not of this fold. My my sheep are out there. They're not all here right now. There's others out there. 
I must bring them also that they will listen, or hear this church, and they will listen to my voice. So there will be one flock, one shepherd. How does he get his sheep? They listen to his voice. Go down to verse 24. So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? You are the Christ. If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Jesus answered, I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me, but you do not believe, listen, because you're not among my sheep. Well, what marks off a sheep? What, what distinguishes the sheep from the goats? What's the, the distinctive ability of a sheep? Verse 27, my sheep hear my voice. There they are. And I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. The, the Lord speaks his word out through his scripturated word, and preachers preach the words of Christ. And every Sunday that the word of God is preached, Christ is speaking to his flock. And those who come to hear it are the sheep, the precious sheep that Jesus has loved and Jesus has lived and died for, that he is bringing home. But those who do not receive the word are no, not his sheep. The distinctive nature of a sheep is that it hears its shepherd's voice. The sheepness of a sheep is that it hears its shepherd. The savedness of a person is revealed in how they respond to Christ's voice. People come to church to hear the word of God because they hear in that word their Savior, their shepherd, the lover of their souls speaks to them. And so they gather around his word. The word gathers as well. It causes the new birth. It gathers God's people. Thirdly, the word sanctifies his people. Jesus in John 17, 17, you don't have to pray there, I'll read it to you. Jesus prays, sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Sanctify them. Jesus is saying the word is going to be used to sanctify the people of God. Sanctify means to make them more like him, holy, to set them apart from sin, to consecrate them for God's purposes. The word sanctifies you. It is like water from heaven rushing down and cleansing you from your sin, the sin that easily entangles you. The Word is going to cause the new birth. The Word is going to bring new life. The Word is going to gather His people. The Word is going to sanctify them. I'm reminded as I was thinking about these things of the magician's nephew, one of the books in the Chronicles of Narnia. And it describes at the very beginning of that book, Aslan, the great lion who represents Jesus, singing the world into existence. And what starts is darkness and emptiness. As he sings, lights appear and the world appears and uh, plants appear and birds chirping appears and clouds appear. And suddenly it's this great and beautiful world that's filled and it was all brought into existence by the voice of their king. Friends, this is what Christ is doing now with his word. It is going forth all over the world this very morning. It is being spread. And as God's word is being spread, people are being saved. People are being gathered. People are being sanctified. 
The Word of God does the work of God. And that is why we sow seed. Martin Luther was one of the most influential men in world history. God used him to spark the Reformation in the 1500s. When he reflected on it, he said that he wasn't trying outrightly to oppose the false teachings of the Roman Catholic Church, but rather uh, to outrightly defy them, or rather his approach was to simply preach the Word of God, to teach it. And wherever it came in conflict with the teachings of Rome, he said so. And toward the end of his ministry, he wrote this, I opposed indulgences and all the papists, but never with force. I simply taught, preached, and wrote God's word. Otherwise, I did nothing. And while I slept, that remind you of anything? And while I slept or drank Wittenberg beer with my friends Philip and Amsdorf, the word so greatly weakened the papacy that no prince or emperor ever inflicted such losses upon it. Here it is, friends. I did nothing, he says. The Word did everything. The Word did it all. And Grace Rancho Church must be, Grace Rancho must be a church that is a standing monument, not to the ingenuity of any man, not to the charisma of any personality. It's not a standing monument to the strategies of ministry, but to the power of the Word of God. I hope that people who hear what's happening in this place don't understand why people are showing up on Sundays because there's nothing all that appealing. The only thing that's appealing is the fact that God speaks through his word and we all want to hear what he has to say. So the kingdom work is accomplished through the word of God. And you go back to Mark and that's what kingdom ministry is like. That's how the kingdom grows and advances. What is it like? It's not an army advancing. It's a man scattering seed. And then he sleeps. And then he sleeps. He doesn't do it. It's not the technique of the throwing of the seed. It's just at the right angle. It's not that he dresses up the seed to make it a little more appealing for the soil. He just scatters seed. And that ought to give encouragement to every single one of us who don't feel very good at speaking to other people. It's not about how good you are at speaking to people. That's not where the power is. Where's the power, church? It's the word that is the power. God works through the word that you speak. You say, you remember Romans 1. The gospel is the power of God for salvation. And so when you speak the gospel, do you realize that God's infinite power goes through you, out your vocal cords, and touches the minds and the hearts of the people who hear, you have no power. I have no power. The word has all power. Why? Because God is working in his word. Here's our last point. The kingdom work, the kingdom work, or the incremental revival, however you want to put it, it looks forward to the glorious unveiling. Verse 29, But when the grain is ripe, at once he puts in the sickle, because the harvest has come. 
Or we can look back at verse 31, the grain of the mustard seed, which was so small, it's one of the smallest seeds on the earth, 32. When it is sown, it grows up and becomes larger than all the garden plants and puts out large branches so that the birds of the air can make nests in its shade. The harvest that he's describing, or the final growth of that garden plant, he's describing the end of the age when all God's elect have been gathered in through the spreading of God's word. Our unstoppable shepherd has rescued every lost lamb. And the full number of God's chosen people are all brought home. That is coming, church. That day is coming that the work that is being done here will be finally completed. Not because we are great, but because Jesus is great. And because He loves to save sinners. And He spreads His word through all the earth to gather in and redeem His lost lambs. It seems insignificant, but this is what Jesus is doing. And there is coming a day that the full crop is unveiled. The full gathering of His redeemed are made known. Verse 32, it says, so that the birds of the air can make nests in its branches. You say, what does that mean? Is that just imagery? I think it's more than imagery, and the reason is because that very same phrase is used several times in the Old Testament, and every time it's used, it's describing a nation so great and powerful that other nations benefit from its greatness. It has its influence over all kinds of other nations. That's that's describing Babylon at certain points, Assyria at certain points, and even the promises given to Israel, if they are obedient, that they will be like a giant tree where birds nest in its shade. He's saying that this kingdom is going to span all nations. All the globe will be impacted by the coming of this glorious kingdom. Jesus is saying that the kingdom, when it is finally and fully revealed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed by it. It is the great kingdom that God has designed for his people that he gave to Adam, but Adam lost it. And it was promised to Israel, but Israel failed in their time. The church is not the kingdom, but we anticipate the kingdom. We spread the message of the kingdom. We help prepare citizens for the kingdom. And this is the greatest enterprise we can ever give ourselves to because there is an absolute promise we find in these parables that in the end, we win. We win, the kingdom comes, and the king gets the glory due his name. And all tongues and tribes and nations are there saying, Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Are you a discouraged church member who says, God could never use me? Just remind yourself that Jesus said the kingdom is like a mustard seed it's small it's insignificant or the kingdom advances like a guy sowing seed you could do that and you can know that as you do it you're participating in the most glorious reality in the universe that is this coming kingdom of god that will last forever that will not be shaken that will endure for all time and all ages and when you give yourself to his work you're participating in that i want to close with a story story that was written by J.R.R. Tolkien, the same writer as the one who wrote The Lord of the Rings. But he wrote a short story with an interesting title called Leaf by Niggle. 
Nigel is a small man who is a painter. His, word, his name is actually a word that if you look up in the Oxford English Dictionary, to niggle means to work in a fiddling way, to spend time on petty, unnecessary details. And that's what niggle is like in the story. He's a painter, always slowly fiddling away at his work. And one day he has this idea that he wants to paint this glorious canvas. It's described in his imagination as, quote, a country. And in his mind, it began to open out to him. And there were glimpses of a forest marching over the land and of mountains tipped with snow. But in the foreground was this great tree that he wanted to paint. And so he begins to work. And as he works, he gets caught up in the details. He's getting the shading just right. He's trying to get the specks of dew on the leaves just perfect. But as he works, he keeps getting interrupted. His neighbor is a needy person and keeps calling him for different things. And so Niggle, constantly distracted from his work, is helping his neighbor again and again. The story starts with this note that says that Niggle would have to go on a journey soon. And the journey represents the journey that we all must go on, the journey of death. And he wants to complete this picture before he dies. But all his life, he works on just this leaf, another leaf, just a few leaves, because he's always distracted by serving his neighbor and by the details of his work. Until one night, his wife gets sick, and he goes out to get a doctor, but as he is out in the cold trying to find a doctor for her. He ends up getting chilled and coming down with a fever himself. And that's when he meets this driver that appears at his door and says, hey, it's time for you to go on your journey. That is, it's time for you to die. And when he realizes his time is up, he begins to weep. The text says that, oh, <laughs> Niggle says, oh dear, it's not even finished. All the work that he had been trying to is not even close to being done. He leaves with his project unfinished. The painting gets taken by others, put in a museum in a little, for a little bit, and then it's forgotten. But the story doesn't end there. As Niggle enters into this heavenly afterlife, he's on a train going to the heavenly country. The train lets him out, and he jumps on a bike, and he's riding in this beautiful countryside, and as he's riding, he sees something so startling, he falls off his bike, and he looks over in the distance, and there is the tree, <laughs> the tree that he had imagined, the tree that he had been working all his life to paint. He's amazed by it. It's beautiful. It's better than he even ever thought in his dreams. And he comes up to this tree, and he looks up, and he can see the leaf that he had been painting, the small, tiny leaves that he had been working on that he never was able to complete, there they are in the tree, except they're real, they're permanent. And he raises up his hands and he cries out, it is a gift. You see, up until he saw this tree, he thought that all his work was insignificant. He thought that none of his work mattered. During his life, it never felt complete. During his life, it always felt unfinished. It never felt final. 
His work felt totally insignificant. No one remembered it. But he gets to the new country, and he realizes that all the work he had done all his life is part of the permanent reality that lasts forever. Church, this is your work. It will feel unfinished. It will feel incomplete. You will feel like you're not doing much. You will feel like you're distracted, like you wish you could do more. But when you get into that next country, church, you will see that your work for the Lord was not in vain. That the word that flowed through you into the lives and hearts of others, God used. It was all part of his glorious plan. And when the kingdom comes, we will realize that none of it was in vain. This is the kingdom we long for, isn't it? If you're not a Christian, I want you to know that you're invited. You're invited. The word comes to you this morning. And the word that Jesus has for you, that though you have offended a holy God, he is willing to pardon you. And he has done everything necessary to forgive all your sins through the death, the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. He's alive right now. And he welcomes you into his kingdom if you come to him in repentance and faith. And you can know that your life lived for him will matter. And if you're already following Jesus, sow the seed today. Embrace the ordinary. Dive all in. It will seem insignificant, but go for it. God will use your work to do permanent things in that kingdom that we won't fully see until we're there. Let's pray. Thank you for the promise of your coming kingdom, Lord, that there will be a harvest, that there will be a great nation of your redeemed that will be spanning every tongue, tribe, and nation that will be fully and completely glorified, that will be forever with you in the place where there are no more tears, there is no more sickness. The old things pass and the new things are come. Help us to long for that day and in the meantime to serve you, to serve your kingdom purposes by being sowers of the word. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.